Fearscape Media Network. Exploring the unknown, one podcast at a time. There is no question that something is here, lurking, somewhere in the darkened corners. But how will we ever find out what it is? We need to look, always, and never stop. No matter what stands in our way, no matter what others may think. Explore the darkness. Shine light into it. Join the red strings and the silver threads. Everything is connected. Somehow. I am Mark L. Watson. This is Peer Beyond the Veil. Very early on, I was attracted to the paranormal and the strange, the unknown, and the mysterious. I grew up in a family where on one side was a very devout Christian, and on the other side, very open to beliefs about, you know, the ability to have psychic uh, powers, perhaps ESP, to see ghosts, uh, to have life after death. These sort of things were sort of the campfire stories that followed around one side of the family. And so I was kind of like, I was really ingrained in this situation of a family of belief, whether that is like sort of uh, typical religious, organized religion, uh, or it's on the fringe. And so I never was one of these people that was very skeptical about anything. And it was only until later that, you know, you start to build up a little bit more skeptical responses things based on just being a human in this 3d construct right um is this possible is that possible and so those thoughts come and go but at the end of the day i think i was very entertained by the idea of something else whether that's like a creature out in the woods that we can't ever discover or what are those lights in the sky i was fascinated by those stories and for a long time it it stayed there it stayed with a fascination and a curiosity and a penchant to be very entertained by these topics, but not really, you know, breaking the books on it, not really studying anything much deeper in relationship to maybe uh, my place in it or the study of this in a, uh, you know, scientific fashion. So that all came later. And that after that was after kind of being humbled a few different ways after entering into the space. These topics we find ourselves discussing and studying, whether on this show or elsewhere, are as varied and as far-reaching as in any other small community of people that one could think of. We discuss that which may exist in the very deepest recesses of our planet, or indeed our research, things we can only speculate on. Wild creatures, both minute and giant, living amongst us in places we can see, and walking between us in ways that we cannot. 
We talk about that which makes us human, what exists in the very soul of us, how our minds work, our thoughts, our untapped abilities, showing themselves occasionally in the very lucky and the very unlucky. We talk about the science which enables or indeed prohibits life to exist out amongst the stars, breaking down quantum theories to establish if something may even be hypothetically possible. The small, relatively hidden, occasionally shunned and mocked paranormal community that we all inhabit has as its field of study quite the broadest range of components. But we're all linked. We occupy the same websites, chat rooms, conference halls, and we read the same books and listen to the same podcasts. The overall quest for answers and for the truth, or indeed our truth, is that which connects us. But we're all here for very different reasons. Some may take scientific approaches, eager to put in place the next tiny piece of data which may lead us in the right direction. Some are looking for a spiritual enlightenment, a way to connect with themselves or the universe around them. Some look for ways to communicate with lost loved ones, to pass messages or to understand what lays ahead for themselves. Amongst us, there are a million people with a million different reasons for why they search for that which they do. And it is that which truly connects us. We're human beings and we each appreciate that we don't have the answers to life's mysteries. And so, if the loud noise and bright lights of the paranormal are taken away, the individuals behind, walking often alone through the cluttered darkness, form the basis of all of this. There is no man I know of who better identifies and showcases the beauty and the pain of the human story than Jim Perry. Host of the critically acclaimed Euphemet, a filmmaker, researcher and radio broadcaster, we have the great pleasure of welcoming Jim on the show tonight as he tells us a little about what draws him to peer beyond the veil. My podcast, Euphemet, was an escape for me. It was an ability for me to take a step back from my career at the time, which was being a creative director at an advertising agency and going, what is something, what is some work, what is a topic? that I can just kind of go and lose myself in and in which I don't have to place judgment on myself or the people I'm talking to. You know, we don't have to go through like some sort of social media brief and figuring out what the demos are of what we're doing here. Let's just do something. And so that's what I did. And it has led me down this crazy rabbit hole where, you know, this is, you know, one of my full-time jobs you know, uh, going to strange places and meeting with individuals that have incredible life-changing stories in relationship to the paranormal. And then from there, you know, um, talking to a lot of fantastic experts and thought leaders in the field as well. So uh, I feel super honored to have uh, kind of gone down that rocky road, um, but to have found my, to really find myself on this other on this other station, essentially, in life, where uh, I'm free to ponder and ask these questions as if I are a little kid again. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about this kind of, um, I, I don't like the word paranormal, but the paranormal community um, mm -hmm. is you have your, 
your little UFO clique, you have your little supernatural clique, you have your occultism clique. But I think largely there's just this great acceptance um, uh, within the, the, the kind of wider community that there's a freedom to ask questions that you just can't in a general society ask. Um, you know, if you're in a bar with probably nearly all of my, you know, my old school buddies, I don't, I don't frequently talk about a lot of this stuff because it's not, it's not really yeah. kind of what, how, what the, it doesn't fall in line with their beliefs. They, you know, I don't care what, what they think, but it's not, it's not common conversation with them. And I've, I found it's a really um, lovely, as you said, freedom to to it and an escapism when you're in it yeah it's some yeah if your intention is to just kind of find your own way in it uh to not be consumed by you know sort of clout chasing individuals or ideas but to consider it an individual approach i think is where people can find a lot of freedom within not just the field but within the community or even within the topic topics itself and i think that uh, you know, obviously that attracts a certain kind of person sometimes. I think it, the people who maybe would take a Sunday and go to the library to try to find those books on Sasquatch alone, right? Instead of maybe going out and playing, you know, soccer or whatever, football, as you would say. <laughs> um, you know, maybe maybe some sometimes those are the people that are attracted to this a little more naturally. Uh, but then again, you know, others just have experiences that they can't, you know, fathom. And once they get in a position where they start questioning that, those things themselves, you know, they find themselves entering into a community perhaps they never thought they would before. And it's those individuals that I think are, are, are really interesting and sometimes game changers in this field as well. People who maybe came over as, you know, sort of straight up journalists or something or, or column writers who have come into the field and go like, what is going on here? And then sub subsequently fall deeper down that rabbit hole. There's something to this that I've been considering quite a bit lately. And it is that within the community there, for some, an idea that you know, you have to be, if you're serious, you have to be a hardline researcher and investigator and all these different things. And in, in fact, I, I think I'm starting to believe in something in contrast to that is that w with any field of, of study or uh, well of ideas, right? Individuals find their own place based upon what their individual skill set is and or where their interest lies. And because this this phenomenon seemingly is so individual, I think that it's best for folks to just consider what is drawing them and, and maybe go there. I don't think everyone needs to be the next, you know, Jacques Vallée looking at UFOs. I think maybe we need some artistic you know interpretations of that maybe we need someone to find what those stories are maybe we need someone who just likes sort of the tech to support by creating new infrastructures you know sort of cloud-based systems or something for you know there's there's all these different yeah i mean just name it not everyone has to go along the same path and i think that is an idea propagated a lot in the community in which 
probably needs to change at some point in time. It's, it's definitely a storytelling choice to use the paranormal as a framing device to tell human stories. At the end of the day, I, I want every episode to, to feel like a human story, not just a horror story, you know, because I, I feel there creates stakes and there creates an ability for listeners to feel a kinship to those characters that, that are telling their story in these things. And I say characters based on, you know, their place within the narrative arc, but these are people these are real human beings sharing real experiences that they have felt profound and and what they have de- deemed as as reality right so uh, you know I, I i've bandied about this a little bit before but it's you know not an excuse the way i'm doing it but it certainly it certainly could be used as a tool to step aside from having to prove anything of being sort of foundationally, you know, consensus reality real. And instead focusing on what we can observe for sure. And that is these anecdotal experiences, which, you know, anecdotal experience, I think, is foundational to any evidence you know, in any sort of scientific study, a collection of that. And I think that's what this is. And so at the end of the day, am I doing it in a sort of a, uh, you know, kind of a backdoor way, <laughs> introducing the anecdotal evidence into the scope of what could be considered largely more scientific evidence? I think so, maybe. But again, like, you know, I think, I think you maybe hear it in the show that I'm not as, con- you know, concerned about displaying why this is real or why I think it's real because I'll tell anybody, I don't know what, I don't know what of this is real. And, you know, I don't know what form or fashion it's trying to communicate. Yeah. I've read all the books. I understand the ideas about why people, you know, think we're seeing what we're seeing, but yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) And anyone who says they have a firm idea, you know, with their feet planted on the ground, uh, I don't know if I want to believe them, you know? As we slowly turn over the stones, looking under each for that grain of knowledge, of information, looking to find on the beach the rare pearl, we do so with patience. Each of them shows a glimmer of a truth, leading us onwards on our own quest, whatever that may be, or otherwise perhaps validating a truth we already held. The information is all around us, and we know to filter much of it out, to allow it to flow away in the stream, claiming no significance from it. But occasionally we turn over a stone that is different from the rest. It shines in the sun, and as we dust away the sand, we know it holds gold. As we follow our paths through this maze, each of us has our defining moments, those instances where everything changed. They may be the first encounter with something otherworldly, our first awakening, our first peek behind the curtain, our first taste of true fear. Whatever they are, they define our adventure as they define us. You know, 
several years ago while doing the radio show version of Euphemet, which was a, you know, a talk radio show on a low power FM station. I was finding my way. I was finding my voice and uh, I was, I was really entertained. I was really excited by, by what I was discovering and this, this new world. And I had previously had a few UFO experiences, you know, just anomalous, crazy light activity, very similar to what a lot of people see. And, um, you know, aside from that, you know, aside from some synchronicities and some psychic experiences as a kid and a couple other things, I didn't have anything that I could sort of uh, point to and go like, wow, you know, that completely changed my outlook on life and what is possible. And so while doing the show, we had heard about a campground, basically, which was a uh, a resort in which folks would come and, uh, you know, potentially signal alien craft. Uh, this is a location called East Eddy Ranch, and it's on the eastern part of Washington State. It's at the foothills of this volcanic mountain called Mount Adams. And the phenomenon people would report there would range from, you know, sort of um, C5-like uh, contacts with, uh, you know, lit craft, uh, illuminating lights, you know, passovers, and these lights that will appear and shine on the mountain and, and, and fly through the forests underneath. And so there was all these sort of reports, and I'd seen these and I heard about them, and so it was close by, and so me and some friends went there. And we were having a ball. Like we went there and we saw the lights and it was like being in an amusement park. And we were like, what is going on? This is nuts and it's crazy. And we were finding ourselves becoming really bohemian very quickly in that setting. <laughs> and I saw the, the reaction of the individuals there that were really truly looking for something, right? And they were sitting out in what they call the field of dreams as, you know, the sun is setting and the lights are starting to really pop off on the mountain and you know, people have uh, sky trackers to track satellites and, you know, uh, you know, um, night vision goggles to try to like see what's going on. And, you know, I saw how a lot of the campers there were talking to the landowner, this guy, James Gilliland, who, you know, is a whole different story that I probably don't want to go into, but essentially is, is a little bit of a kind of a UFO guru and how that, how they spoke with him and how they talked to him was as if he was like sort of a mystic or a shaman, you know, at the top of a hill somewhere, you know, trying to find answers or guidance. And I, and I realized that, that I wasn't too concerned. And actually I was a little bit like turned off by trying to go to another individual in that way. Um, it felt like organized religion to me and it felt weird and it felt icky and it felt like a contamination of what I was experiencing personally with this sort of phenomenon. But as I was having these questions, we were there for a few days, uh, some strange incidents kind of popped up here and there, some different synchronicities, but it was only on the last day that we all decided to split up. And just kind of feel the, the, the power and the majesty of the place before we left. Now, none of us are like sort of, you know, mystics. You know, some of my best friends are. 
but I wouldn't say that any of us were connected to any sort of greater spirituality or idea of uh, even a heightened sense of consciousness. We were kind of just, you know, fucking around out there, for lack of better words. Now, on the last night, when we went to do our own sort of individual uh, alone time, have our alone time with the place, I chose to sit in the field of dreams in a place away from everyone else and just just sit there and meditate. That was something I hadn't done for years. They made me do it in theater school, right? Like it was a, <laughs> a thing that was mandated. I sat there and I said, you know what, I'm just I'm going to meditate. I'm going to keep a soft gaze towards the mountain here. I'm just kind of tap into something here and just and just with no judgment, let myself be free of it and kind of pretend to be a mystic in some sort of sense. And so I sat there and for a while, you know, I was just I was vibing with it. And through my soft gaze, as I was paying attention to my breath, breathing in, breathing out, I noticed a light, one of those mysterious little lights that we had seen earlier on the mountain in the days past, started to light up. Oh, wow. Okay, so they're starting to come back again. What proceeded after that was essentially 20 minutes of me breathing in and breathing out into this light that was synchronized with my breath. And none of the other lights on this mountain showed up. It was just this single light. And with every exhale, that light grew bigger and stronger as if like an ember. And when I breathed in, it was as if I was breathing in this light. And so, yeah, I did this for 20 minutes uh, until my uncle came by. He was with me and he warned me about a spider that was over my head and then I broke it. <laughs> and that was the end of that. But what, what stayed with me was, was a deeper respect for the first time I had the privilege of, of having something of a transcendental experience. You know, I'm a straight edger too, so I don't experiment with sort of psychedelics or, or, or even marijuana or alcohol or anything like that. So it was my first time feeling like I was on a trip. And it was in that moment that I, I decided that I, I really need to reevaluate how I was working with this stuff and what my relationship was with it and that's when I decided that it was it was much yeah I was a part of it but that now that I've had this this experience it means something more and there's a greater responsibility I hold Since then, I, I had changed what I was doing. And soon after, Euphemet was picked up by um, this fledgling podcast network, and they gave me an opportunity to change the show and do it in any way that I wanted to. And that's when I said, listen, I've been doing these you know, documentaries on the radio show, but you know, I'd love to just do it all the way, just make the entire show a documentary series. They were in with it. They gave me a budget. I ran with it. And it's it's been on ever since but during that time during that 
early fledgling beginning of that, we, I went back to ESETI and I went with one of my best friends, Tim Rothschild, who is a, a non-dual shamanic healer. And, you know, I wanted him to experience some of this stuff. You know, he, he has been, you know, to other realms. He has experienced this, this uh, great wealth of synchronicities and, and uh, astral projections and all, you know, everything that you, you would imagine from a non-dual shamanic healer practicing in those, you know, in those realms, he's been there. So I knew that it wouldn't touch him perhaps in the same way as me, but you know, sort of the evidence of more anecdotal experience with the lights in the sky and the lights on the mountain would be a different angle to this. It would be grounding the experiences he's had somewhere else here, here and now with something physical. So I thought that'd be really interesting, kind of almost converse to what my experience was with it going there. So we went there and, you know, this place was really fascinating because it had a lot of different activities actually. You know, there were rooms where you could get an, an energy cleaning. Uh, you know, there was a stone uh, circle out in the field where, you know, all these stones were set up as, as if uh, representative of star systems. And you would go out there and meditate and try to find your star family, right? And we, we pushed ourselves to, to go deep into this sort of strange ET spirituality, consciousness-based kind of pseudo-religion that seemed to be going on there. And we said, listen, we're both really uncomfortable with this, but we're just going to go with it and and see where it all goes. Towards the end of the day, we were invited to a a, a seance. And this was a seance. They were using table tipping as the divination method. And essentially, you know, this is where the, the, the channeler will sit uh, in front of a table and will rock in accordance with different messaging coming through and within sort of like a trance-like state, they will, you know, allegedly be able to channel messages from things like angels and, uh, passed on loved ones and aliens potentially. So this was going on and we were in this room and it was dark and there was maybe six or seven people in there. And uh, to the side of the room, there was this, there was this girl and, and she was getting very emotional and she looked like probably around Tim's line, Tim and I's age. And she seemed like a little out of place. She just seemed alone. And you could read that. Um, and so it was very strange. We're like, wow, people are getting like really emotional in there, huh, Tim? And we were like, yeah, it's, it's real. You know, this is, this is a phenomenon that's acting in, in very different ways for different people in, in how it's relating. So after that, you know, um, we all go out to the field. It's dark. We're doing the sky watch and lights are popping off and it's crazy. And towards the end of the night, it was just Tim, myself, and this girl out in the field. We're the last ones out there. And, you know, we started talking about like the implications of this location and why we were all there and what it meant to us. And and the conversation turns toward her experience and, and why she was there. And, you know, I guess for her husband, it was a dream for him to go there because he was so interested in UFOs and so interested in trying to go there at some point in time. 
but he had recently passed away. And so this was a girl our age, now a widow, never expecting that in her life. Now going to this strange UFO compound to try to find some connection with her husband that she can't fucking believe is gone. And that's where it hit, where this stuff is real. It's real in a different way than when we talk about the real and the paranormal, right? Maybe it's not even real in that way. This shit is real for the human experience. And, you know, at that point in time, I felt like I, I just, it was another reminder for me about how precious these stories are that we tell people, how related the phenomenon is to our own inner workings and struggles and challenges or, you know, or joy or pleasure or whatever it may be that there is a seemingly a reflective quality to this stuff. And sometimes it, you know, encourages us to hike up that mountain to try to find that information at the end of it, at the top of the mountain to try to get some sort of connection. And uh, it was just, it was, it was so powerful, man. And like, whenever I started to feel myself getting too silly, I, I come back to interactions like that, that I had with that girl. And, and it just reminds myself that, you know what, like, don't, you know, don't be a dumbass here, like respect people and respect their stories. Cause there's probably more going on than what you know that space for everyone to like sort of grow and figure out what they're in it for. And, and, and maybe they never find out and that's fine too. You know, I, I just like how, um, it, I don't know, you know, there are systems in place to encourage us to believe within certain constructs and behave in certain ways and, you know, believe in certain gods or not. And uh, those are well-funded well-orchestrated means of, you know, sort of thought policing and capital. So with that being said, you know, I think outside of that, and I think maybe the pandemic is a good example of a, of a factor that shakes up a lot of people's ideas of what 3D consensus reality even is, you know, that routine, that trance folks are in. And uh, that's, that's, that's ritual, that's religion. Uh, these are things that are, you know, sort of nearly within our DNA in, 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 some, in some way, right? Um, we have a lot of beliefs inherent that we don't even know where they came from without studying, you know, more greatly. Um, and so, yeah, there, it's, it's a strange confluence of constructs seemingly that are informing our behavior, not based upon true belief, but inherited belief, seemingly. And I think that's fine, you know, you know, I, I, no judgment on people that are like, you know, just sort of okay with that. Because um, I know there's times when I'm okay in slipping into remission and just being like, you know, whatever, what's what's on TV, you know, uh, it's, it's, that's fine. I think you can't, um, you can't always be about it. You can't always be on because I think that's where people actually maybe lose themselves. I think that in order for myself to be uh, an empathetic storyteller, you know, I, 
I try my best to walk in both worlds or several worlds at the same time, you know, uh, and the podcast is a great device to do that because listen, even as you and I are talking right now, there's a lot of technology that is brokering this conversation. That's, that's allowing it to happen in a way that would have just been complete, you know, magic <laughs> centuries before, you know, not even that. So, you know, I, to, to the point, I think that, you know, we're arbiters of a lot of great responsibility in, in our discourse in this. And, and that's, a, again, an individual responsibility. Yeah, well, it's, well, I got to give Tim credit because it was partly him that influenced me going down this path. Now, it wasn't any of the shamanic mumbo jumbo that he's always talking about. Um, that's for him when he listens. Uh, it was more based on me believing that I could do what he was doing. <laughs> so just to frame that to not make me sound like such an egomaniac, um, it, was a, it was a life preserver that he threw my way, actually, in fact. I met Tim before I did anything with you from that. I met Tim while I was uh, an, at that time an art director for this ad agency. And I was on the road as a producer for this, you know, sort of short web series for a client. And I was traveling with a stand up comedian, and myself and the stand up comedian will spend you know, a night or maybe two, if we were lucky in different spots in the U S and he was supposed to, you know, sort of cut up the town and, and, uh, we were assigned parachuted in these towns with a production company. And it was just, it ended up being like maybe one of the worst projects I ever worked on in my life. <laughs> I, I like, I don't know if I was ready for what was happening there. Um, Mike was just drunk all the time. And, uh, so yeah, so the great thing that happened with this is that Mike is a comedian named Mike Cannon. And at the time he was doing a podcast with Tim called deep inside the rabbit hole. Now uh, I had the ability because of this shoot to go back to New York with him and sit in on an episode of deep inside the rabbit hole, because every time that I would start talking about something a little bit fringe on the road, Mike would say, you just need to meet Tim. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. You and Tim, you're gonna be, you're gonna be great friends. Okay, we'll we'll meet this Tim at some point in time. So we go to this taping. It's at Stand Up Labs, New York, and Tim comes in, and I get all. I already knew I was gonna love this guy because he comes in, and he's the only one taking the show seriously, and he's taking it almost too seriously. He's got a three ring binder with a notebook inside just that looks like something that a channeler would have found in the Edwardian age or something. It was just scribbles and marks and triangles, UFO drawings with arrows down to, you know, a mathematical equation. And I was like, what is going on with this guy? So Mike was drunk and high already. And Dave, the conspiracy theorist was talking to someone on the phone angrily about flat earth. 
And Tim and I started talking and you, we immediately started talking about like old Art Bell episodes. I don't know how it came up, but we started talking about the quickening, this concept and book that Art Bell had with Whitley Strieber, which I couldn't even really tell you what it's about at this point in time. Um, but we started talking about this and it just continued. And I jumped on the show with him and was a guest on it. And I was looking around, and I was like, but podcasting seems really fun. And wait, you can just do this and I can, I can, I can learn to be a broadcaster again. And it awoke a lot of things in me because all through high school, I was a broadcaster, like a high school broadcaster. I had two different radio shows and it was like this whole thing that I thought I would maybe go into before it took a, you know, a, a turn into our direction. And so I always carried that with me. And so I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, I'm chatting with Tim and then, you know, it was maybe a month after that, that the idea for the original talk radio show and podcast a euphemet came out of that. And Mike and Tim were two of my first guests ever. And that was in, oh my goodness. It was probably 2013 or 2014 or something like that. Those, those conversations were going on. And, and from there, you know, I don't know how we've done it, but because I have to travel a lot for work and, and Tim was traveling a lot for a, a couple different projects he had, we just would always make it a point to make sure one of our stops was in, was in town with, with another. And, you know, until the pandemic, we didn't go, you know, for probably like four months without seeing each other for years. And, you know, some friends, uh, you love to death, but you are maybe in a situation where you don't really need to see each other as much and a phone call or text or whatever, those suffice and they feed what your friendship is. But I think because Tim and I met in this crazy crossroads where he was finding himself as a healer and developing that skill set, and then, you know, me finding myself and what like my true passion could be. And this idea of maybe helping people through sharing these stories, I think because we bonded at the pivotal changing moment for both of us, it's just something that we can never, no matter what happens, we can't take that away from, from when that happened in our life. And it wasn't one of those things that was by proximity. It wasn't like, um, I have great friends that I still talk to this day that I happen to graduate with. You know, that's a preordained sort of thing if you're going along the, the stream of life, right? Okay, graduated high school. That was great. Here we go. This was something else. This was like a profound life moment, and they continued to happen to us in different ways. And so we've continually been able to be there for each other and support and make excuses to do projects and podcasts together. And there's been times when I've been like really need his insight and help. And there's times when it's converse of that, right? The thing I think is special about our relationship too, is that we, you know, I don't, I respect, I think Tim is a, Tim is a powerful healer and he helps a lot of people on a daily basis. And I'm very proud of him for developing that skill set. but I honestly never look at him that way. <laughs> I look at him as my buddy. And so being in the same space, but also being able to be a counterbalance 
to any of the bullshit that happens has been very important because we are outside the bubble of what our own egos or what our informed egos are within the space, right? So we can we can kind of level each other out a little bit. And it's it's a safe, comfortable place to be as a as a public person to have someone that un- both understands like what you're going through, but also go like, hey, come on now. <laughs> so yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you asked about him because I I love talking about him yeah i love that guy yeah he's cool he's really really cool to listen to is he's always got um you guys seem like you have this brilliant um kind of symbiotic you know relationship certainly on the mic but you he he always seemed to be able to just complement each other nicely and i think that's what it is he seems to just bring bring a couple of different approaches and then you've got your little approach and yeah it always sounds great thank you in in on on the topic of um A little creative partnership that you uh, have been part of that I feel also works um, incredibly well is your recent filming of the episodes with Carl, um, Carl Pfeiffer, who, mm. again, his cinematography is, is very beautiful. And I feel complements how, how I hear the tone of you for Matt. Um, obviously, you're, you've created director yourself, so a lot of that cinematography is going to come from, from your own input. Um, but having seen some of the other stuff that he's worked on, whether it's um, Spirits of the Stanley, obviously with Helia, they're kind of softly lit, um, long shot, um, lingering shot, quite poetic, s- slow, slowly paced but in a, in a in a good way um yeah. which is how i feel euphemet is and obviously that's a deliberate creative decision but um having seen carl's stuff before you guys hooked up together that was also the direction carl's stuff was in so i think that mm-hmm. as i say that creative partnership yeah, yeah. works really well but that's cool and that's just the that's the recent season you've been filming is it that was uh for the second season i believe and so yeah we we you know, I've had a third season and I'm about to embark on the fourth season. You know, the idea is that, I mean, thank you. I, I agree with Carl. And, um, you know, I, I always, you know, I always believe in terms of my creative direction strategy is that if you find the right people for the job, it creates less actual creative direction for you to do. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I think that like maybe 60, 65% of the work is just like pairing is, is pairing with the right, right folks. And that was, that was such a fun trip. I mean, what was crazy about that trip, it was, it was Carl, myself and my dad who was, you know, getting out of a, you know, years of kind of this divorce and starting on his own and finding himself, you know, and, and we got to travel the road together and, and all around the United States for this, for, for this season. And, um, so to, so to be with my dad, to be collaborating with Carl, having really kind of crazy situations happen along the way that I, I can't even really describe in chatting with you. Cause I, I'm still trying to figure like, we're both still trying to wrap our head around what was happening. Um, which I hope we'll be able to address at some point in time. You know, the idea of, of shooting those things, and we have more that we haven't released as well. We have uh, several more episodes that we haven't, we haven't put out. But the idea was that we just wanted to, we just wanted to see what it, 
it felt like. We just wanted to see what it would look like. And uh, we wanted to gain insight from it. So from those episodes we released and the ones we haven't, we just, we gained a shit ton of knowledge about how we'd want to do things if we did something bigger together. You know, obviously Carl is, is really busy, you know, um, he's a great colorist and, you know, doing some of that work uh, freelance in addition to the Hellier stuff, you know, um, he has a definitive brand, right? And he has a following now. And it's something that I think, you know, paired with, you know, Euphemet in some vein could be really successful if we approached it in a couple of different ways. But the thing about, um, this is one of the most, you know, frustrating things about being in this space now is that, you know, I'm of mind to just make stuff, you know, um, if, you know, if I can bootstrap something and just put it into motion and, and produce it and make it, I'm going to do that. But now at a stage where there's other considerations, there are stakeholders that, uh, appear, uh, there are business relationships and partners. There's the ability potentially to be on a much bigger stage. And so when these things are brought into the creative process, it had, you know, it makes you wait. <laughs> it makes you wait to see, um, well, I can't do this now because this might come into place and this piece might land and we're pitching this. So, so what happened is that this whole time I've been trying to redefine and in some regards escape the creative direction part of my life. Whereas I've actually come full circle and have just been sort of uh, postured into position to think about Euphemet in those ways through different mediums. So I know I'm being vague and that's on purpose because I don't like to talk about things before anything happens. And I think it's just really dumb. You know, there's a lot of different executions of this project that have been uh, in works for a long time. And I think what people were able to see with that Carl stuff was the, the early machinations of what a world like that could look like and feel like. And now it's to the point of, you know, actually gestating some of that stuff and, and finding out where, you know, what and where and when and how that's going to be birthed. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you but, can't, um, you can't test the water until you're in the pool, can you? So sometimes yeah. you've got to just get in and uh, swim about and then figure out what you're doing from there. And like you said, sometimes just strapping it together and throwing it out and yeah. see if it works. And it won't, like half the time it won't, more than half the time. Right. Yes, but yes. <clears throat> so a lot of people don't understand that about creative work either, is that, you know, you know how many, you know, you know, 10, 15, 20 year overnight successes there are? A yeah. lot. Because like people, you know, before something breaks in which they're able to take advantage of and, you know, they have a lot of other passion projects that probably just fucking failed. And I have a bunch of, them. you know, it was just about, you know, very early on, I was a, you know, a big filmmaking fan. And it's something that I wish to pursue in the future at some point in time. And, you know, I, I, I would think that I'm like kind of a student of it. Um, and I followed... I followed Mark Duplass for a long time. And the Duplass brothers, of course, were, were known for their mumblecore films. 
and you know basically with this other group of you know kind of seattle new york and filmmakers putting this look and feel of kind of a pseudo documentary very low budget but very well acted very emotive stories so you know um a lot of great filmmakers came from that little scene and continue to make good films to this day, including the Duplass brothers who do a lot of stuff now for, for HBO, a lot of different series for them and a lot of different films. And I remember, you know, Mark kind of just, he basically had a speech at I think South by Southwest where he illuminated this fact that, listen, you're just gonna suck for a while and it's okay. And just try to make as many things as possible. And the more things you make, essentially, you know, the more shitty things you make, the closer you are to making actually good things. And that's just a part of the process. So don't get down on yourself. Just make. And it's something, that idea is something I carry with me on all facets of creative work, especially when young creatives approach me and ask me for advice. And the advice is, make without expectation just make it and and soon you'll be in a situation where you can deliberate and you can hem and haw and you can or you can be very precious and you can hold on to things that will all come and those are different challenges you know <laughs> those freedoms become different challenges for your process but right now just make things and that goes for anyone within you know the occult or paranormal or esoteric is sometimes it's just a matter of the ritual of making something right it's it's almost like a manifestation you know in the process of just getting something going is you know some would say a magical working in and of itself and I, and i think that's important and i think that's what you know sometimes what podcasts are is just that intent of putting something out there and creating this new energy is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a lot of ways. It's it's something that like I think especially even generationally like folks will continue need to have the support in in feeling free to just make things without anything connected to them. Right? I mean, that's it, an important part of not just the creative process but the human process. I just, you know, make things with no expectation, like no one's watching and no one has to know. Like, you don't have to monetize everything you do. Not everything should be, you know, sort of suggested as content, right? It just, it's just, it is what it is. It is whatever you're making. And, and I think there should be consideration for that um, in, in, you know, in lieu of hustle culture and everything else. And uh, I, I think that, I mean, that ties directly into sort of what seems like the theme of this conversation which is that individual process and you know you know if you if you want no gods no gods if you want gods go for it you know but but just just be you right just be you respect yourself find your own voice um if you want if you can um and don't feel the pressure like you need to know everything because no one knows anything I almost didn't ask you because it's a, it's a little bit kind of over over milked at the moment um, uh, in these last couple of years. But while I've got you and I might not get you again, Jim, I have to ask: How does it feel to be the guy who broke 
the Hellier case out into the public arena for the first time. Um, <laughs> this, this kind of almost revolutionary movement that, that has followed mm. it um, mm. first appeared on your own airwaves. Um, did, did you know what you'd hit on when you first spoke to Greg? Or I mean, I saw the potential in it, and that's why I wanted to spend so much time with that story. And I'm, I'm thrilled with, you know, where they have taken it, right? Because, you know, obviously that wasn't my story. It was, you know, Greg and Dana's experience. It was their story. It was a blog post that I took on and said like, oh my God, this is the great, this is a great theme for an entire episode. And, you know, it, it was because of that episode that it actually allowed me to experiment a little bit more with some different production techniques. Um, the inclusion of some documentary aspects and a little bit long-term long-form storytelling with it in addition to kind of like our deep dive interviews we did so you know i learned a lot with those episodes and i gained a lot from you know kind kind of seeing the dedication of folks like the new kirks and then being you know uh you know, allowed an opportunity for that episode to introduce them to essentially the collaborators that would, you know, take the story to, to new heights, right? So I saw definitely the potential. I found everything in that story to be so captivating. And it was not a surprise to me that they were able to collaborate and put something together based on that story that kind of took the internet by storm. Um, yeah, I'm very, very super proud of those guys. And, uh, you know, I, th I think the case only continues to get stranger and, uh, you know, I, I like revisiting that topic every once in a while and, uh, you know, seeing, you know, if I have something to say about it or, or a voice or, and, and I'm sure, you know, some future interviews will take place between me and those, me and those folks. But, but honestly, I think, I think there was a, I think there was a period of time where I could have let my work uh, become uh, too closely tied to the Hellier case and, and those episodes in particular. I think that we have a tremendous, uh, you know, sort of like cross fan base, Hellier and Euphemet. And I think that they'll always sort of be a little bit synonymous with each other in terms of our relationship and our early work. And, you know, essentially, you know, many, many documentary episodes later on featuring that team and those creators and those, those individuals. But I think that like, I made a little bit of a conscious choice to, to kind of remove myself a little bit from it so that I could continue finding more stories like that to continue earmarking and and highlighting and and giving the first voice maybe to stories that could be maybe the next versions of hellier you know and to, and to others that have experienced things that you know could be that next breakout series or whatever and you know i don't know like uh maybe that's foolhardy and maybe that's just like wishful thinking but you know i i think those guys have it so well covered and it, it obviously is a sort of an all-consuming that has become like sort of their brand and their thing at this point in time. And so I also want to be very 
I always want to be very careful to allow them the space to grow and flourish. And, and obviously with the project and the brand that they really own and, and the stories that are theirs, we really want to be really respectful of never encroaching too much either, because what's the difference between their story and someone else I have on uh, where I would do the same to not over overreach, you know, and be, be respectful of that scenario. So um, I guess to answer your question, I feel very happy and lucky to have been a figure in the start of, of what it's become. And I can't wait to see where it goes and circle back to it at some point in time too. You know, uh, although that, although it's getting a lot of probably media overexposure, um, when I visited Skinwalker Ranch, that really was pretty scary because, so for those that don't know, Skinwalker Ranch is a piece of land in Utah that has been attributed to sort of a, a ton of various uh, paranormal entities and attacks and you know, UFOs and shapeshifters and dogmen and has all been studied uh, intensively for decades now by several different research organizations, including funding from the U.S. government. So I was out there doing a feature on an individual who owns the property, the fence line over from Skinwalker Ranch. It's all the same land. It's all the same basin, right? So, you know, being there... I felt an existential threat. It wasn't, you know, the ghost that I saw, you know, speaking of Greg Newkirk, with Greg Newkirk in the weird hotel in West Virginia. It was uh, a more silent threat, seemingly. And it was one that I think I allowed myself to be kind of like wrapped up into the ideas and notions and fears that have been stimulated by all the stories that are out there, right? I felt like I was, for the very first time, going to a place that I had no control at all and that I had to be okay with that. So I prepared. It was, you know, I tried to sort of spiritually prepare if I could even do that, if I could muster that. And what I did, I I did a couple different things. One of the things I did is uh, I have this friend, Jennifer Sodini. She's an oracle and she produced an oracle deck. And so oracle decks, unlike tarot decks, are meant to be sort of more of suggestions than kind of an archetypical um, direction. And so I go, you know what? I'm going to pull a couple cards. You know, I don't do this much, but I'm going to pull a couple cards and, and just see if it says anything with my intent focused towards that destination. Essentially, the cards that I pulled suggested that I go with respect as if something is wild. So considering that, I, I prepared myself like that. I, I said, okay, listen, this is like me going into a place and meeting a dog for the first time that I never, I've never met. And, you know, maybe they look like a tiny bit agitated and I'm going to respect them. You know, I'm not going to mess around in this situation. So I, I tried to go in with that intent. You know, I asked him, you know, hey, man, what do you, what would you do, you know, what, what, what kind of shamanic mysticism magic would you do in this situation to, to give yourself some insight? 
And he said, listen, man, I think just focus on your intent like you always do. And that that's all you can do in that situation. Just just make sure you're there for the right reasons and that you're not exploiting anything and that you're uh, being empathetic to, to both the individuals there and also this alleged phenomenon. And tread lightly. Even with that, you know, I spent a day driving around with Ryan Burns, the, the guest, and with him telling me the scariest stories you can imagine about entities and creatures and people being possessed in the desert and all these different things. And by the time we spent, you know, several hours out, uh, you know, in a snowy night, seven degrees, you know, I felt all of that energy. I felt all that wind up. I felt all of that, uh, all of that horror that could be uh, right on the other side of that snow drift. And I, I had to just sort of sit with that and pay attention to the snow falling, right? And just focus on my breathing again and do a soft gaze and not be afraid of whatever light may emerge to try to communicate with me. So Thursday, March 11th, we actually return with the fourth season of Euphemet. That means new episodes every other week on the feed. Some of the stories we're, you know, documenting right now are just unbelievable. They might be some of the sort of scariest and most emotional stories we've ever uh, had the opportunity to tell. So I encourage folks to, to go back to the feed since we've been on hiatus for a little bit and, you know, sort of follow along with that and, and listen to the new episodes. Cool, man. Cool. Well, um, really appreciate Jim so much you coming on to speak with us. Um, of course, man. About your show and your history and, uh, and and what makes everything work behind the scenes with you guys. So Thanks yeah, so thank you. Thanks so much for for taking the time to speak with us. Um, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Here Beyond the Veil has been written and presented by myself, Mark Watson, as part of the Fearscape Media Network. Music and soundtracks are credited and licensed to Purple Planet and to Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. All rights are reserved by our parent company, MLW Publishing. You can follow us at facebook.com forward slash Veil or on Twitter at Veil or at peerbeyond2020. Please click the like and subscribe buttons when you see them, most importantly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps us to attract the attention we need to keep the show going, to get the guests that you all want to hear from, and to help more and more people 